There's a very famous commentarial work in the Buddhist tradition. It's called the Vasudhimaga. It was written by a monk named Buddhaghosa in the 5th century AD. The commentary is 838 pages long. And it was compiled in response to one question that was once asked of the Buddha. The question was, the inner tangle and the outer tangle, this generation is entangled in a tangle. And so I ask of Gotama, the Buddha, this question, who succeeds in disentangling the tangle? 838 pages later, we know the answer. This is actually our practice. This is at the heart. It's like the life's blood of our practice is disentangling. It's a sense of relinquishing or letting go. Sometimes, quite commonly, we view practice almost in a materialistic light, as though we were consumers in the way we are consumers in the world. From this perspective, we can sometimes get the sense that we will somehow increase our value as humans, as human beings, by the possession or the acquisition of certain qualities. We think about acquiring goodness or acquiring purity or enlightenment or understanding with a sense of ownership, of possession, as though we can get these qualities and hold on to them and they will somehow embellish our lives. It's a very materialistic perspective. This sense of mine, my purity or my goodness, my enlightenment. Rather than seeing it in that way, we can view our practice as one of disentangling, one of cessation, one of rest, one of peace. If we can do this, then it can be, for many of us, a very new sense of freedom, sometimes a radically different sense of freedom. There's an illustration that's sometimes used of a particular kind of monkey trap in which a square of tar is spread out on the ground. And the monkey goes over and puts one paw into this this sticky tar. And then in trying to free itself, the monkey puts down the next paw, trying to get some leverage, and then puts down one leg, and then the other leg. And then finally, in a desperate attempt to free itself, the monkey puts down its head and becomes a completely stuck monkey. (laughs) This is what we can do sometimes when we don't understand the difference between reinforcing somehow old habits, old patterns in a search for freedom on the one hand and on the other hand approaching our dilemma from a completely new perspective 
a radical change in perspective of what freedom might mean, of what happiness might mean. It's in this sense that we talk about the difference between wisdom and knowledge, knowledge being that sense of acquisition, something we can possess, we can know so much, and we can display it so easily. Wisdom is much more delicate. It is a sense of how to move throughout our life situations without getting trapped, without setting snares. I want to talk tonight about this faculty of wisdom, or of disentangling, or of letting go. Part of this ability of letting go, relying on and trusting, respecting a sense of peace and of rest, is an ability to surrender. Sometimes when we hear the word surrender, we have the impression of succumbing, just falling into a situation or collapsing into a situation without any power, without any sense of strength. And this is not actually at all what it means. It rather means to be close enough to a situation to have a true sense of grace in approaching it. Somebody once asked the Buddha this question. He asked, By what means do you cross the flood? How do you cross the flood? The flood is the flood of desire, of suffering, of the world as we commonly take it. The Buddha replied, I crossed the flood by not lingering and by not hurrying. Those who linger drown. Those who hurry get swept away. And so by not lingering and by not hurrying, I crossed the flood. If you think about that image for a moment, how can we learn just that sense of movement, that kind of grace and beauty and ease with that sense of pace? You know how when we look at any activity that is done by someone who is quite accomplished in it, there is this tremendous sense of simplicity and rhythm and harmony to what they are doing. It's just that right mixture of effort and surrender, of deep acceptance and forward movement. This very, very delicate balance that enables us to move just at the right speed, not to drown, not to get swept away, is built on a certain foundation. It's built on a foundation of strength and openness and flexibility of mind. This ability to move gracefully, to not get deterred, not get stuck, doesn't happen easily if the mind or the heart are constricted, if it's contracted. In Burma, they use the example a lot of a flower that's left out in the sun for too long, and it withers. 
There are certain ways in which our hearts, our minds can wither. Our minds become very uneasy. Our heart becomes very unhappy. From this mental space, it is not very easy to build this foundation of flexibility and strength. And so we begin the practice and recall all along the way the various elements that will build this foundation, that will bring us into a position where we can more truly and genuinely both surrender and move on. This foundation is composed of many different elements. To begin with, it's composed of a very strong commitment and establishment in moral behavior, in virtue, which brings the qualities of strength and purity to the mind. It protects one from the pain or the unhappiness or the debilitation of certain kinds of behavior. And it brings happiness to the mind, great joy and great lightness. There's a very direct path that's traced from this simple and basic commitment to morality all the way up to final freedom. This is from the Vasudhimaga. It says that moral development is the foundation for the development of restraint. When they use the word restraint, it means those times when greed or desire or hatred or fear may have come up in one's mind, but we don't act because of this commitment to not harming, to manifesting kindness and compassion in the world. And so it's recognizing that we have a choice. Even when different things arise within us, we don't have to follow them through into action. Restraint is considered the foundation for the development of the absence of remorse. Because if we have made this commitment and we continue to make these choices, we don't have the kind of guilt and fear and hesitation and confusion that comes from the complexity we can find ourselves in when we've harmed ourselves or others, that kind of darkness, that difficulty. So we can live with clarity and simplicity and we can die in that same way without the burden of remorse and guilt. Absence of remorse is considered to be the foundation for the development of gladdening, which is the lightness and the ease in our hearts that comes from this simplicity. Gladdening is the foundation for the development of happiness, which is the happiness of peace and composure and strength. Normally in our lives we go for excitement, That's what we want, and that's what we consider happiness, is new stimulation and exciting events. This is a very different kind of happiness. Happiness is the foundation for the development of tranquility, which is that state of stillness, like the clear forest pool, rather than the turbulence and the agitation that comes from guilt and remorse and worry and complexity. Tranquility is the foundation for the development of concentration, which is that ability to keep the mind steady and stable, one-pointed, 
which brings power, brings clarity. Concentration is the foundation for the development of correct knowledge and vision to see things clearly as they truly are without needing them to be a certain way to bolster up our desire systems or our fears to see things clearly. Correct knowledge and vision is the foundation for the development of dispassion, which is defined as being equanimity in all circumstances. Dispassion is the foundation for the development of the fading away of greed and hatred. The fading away of greed and hatred is the foundation of deliverance. So it is absolutely a direct road, beginning with morality, leading to the kind of happiness and peace it can produce, to tranquility, to concentration, to wisdom, to freedom, which we follow one step after another. And this is the beginning. It's the sense of morality. Having this commitment to, to basic non-harming, non-harming, is like taking the teaching and bringing it to life. Otherwise, it remains somewhat dry and theoretical and may not touch our everyday world. It is this commitment that makes it real in an immediate sense. So there's morality. The next quality is that of generosity, which means a sense of letting go or not grasping. It's freeing ourselves from continual wanting and desiring. The faculty of greed in the mind is a sticky quality. So the example is used of somebody for whom greed is very strong at a particular moment, walking into a room. And what they tend to see upon walking into this room is everything they want. It's like the mind starts sticking to things. That's the quality of greed. It's so easy in this world to live with a sense of tremendous psychological hunger and wanting and wanting and sticking and wanting more and needing more. If we can develop this faculty of generosity, it will start to disentangle us from this old conditioning. In the world, in our external lives, the quality of generosity means to share and to offer, to offer material goods, to offer one's time, one's energy, one's service. And it's very, very powerful. The Buddha himself said that if we knew, as he did, the power of giving, we would not allow a single meal to pass by without sharing, without sharing something. To give is to let go. It's to open. It's to build the foundation for loving care. When we give, we can surround that act with an act with a feeling of joy. In the motivation for giving, which is very, very important, in the act itself, 
and in the recollection of it. It's an action that can be completely surrounded by joy. There are three different levels of generosity that are often talked about. The first of these is the is what is called beggarly giving, which is when we offer something and it may be the worst of what we have and we offer it with great trepidation. You know, the thought, well, maybe I'll give it and maybe I won't and it's been in the attic for five years, but maybe I'll need it soon and, and on and on it goes. But still it's a kind of relinquishing, it's a kind of letting go, even to offer in this way. And then there's what is known as friendly giving, which is to offer something more with a greater good-heartedness, open-heartedness. And then there is what is known as kingly or queenly giving, which is to offer the best of what we have and to offer it happily with great delight. One of the most powerful things about doing this practice in Asia since many people ask at different times, you know, is it going to make any difference if I do it in Massachusetts rather than in Burma? One of the truly powerful things about practicing in Asia is to feel the strength and the joy of the generosity that is there. When we practiced in Burma, we did not have to pay anything because the practice itself is so honored and revered in the culture that people love to come and offer food for people who are meditating. In some meditation centers in Sri Lanka, the waiting lists are about a year. You have to sign up a year ahead of time in order to be able to come and offer food for people who are sitting. And sometimes whole villages will come down and they'll spend all night cooking and preparing the food. It's an amazing feeling to walk into the dining room and to see these people there who often have so little themselves. It's not as though these are particularly wealthy countries. And to see the great delight that they have in being able to offer just the best of what they can. Sometimes the best of what they could offer was not very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) But to see the, the joy that they had in being able to give it and to know that our practice Our very lives were being sustained by their happiness in giving. It's an extraordinary feeling. To give is a time of great happiness when it's done from a motivation like that. To take great delight in the the chance to offer, in the opportunity to offer. So that's external generosity. In terms of our actual meditation practice, it's as though we're practicing a kind of generosity of spirit where we're relinquishing defilements, relinquishing habits, practicing the ability to let go. If we can do this, if we can continually let go, have a generous spirit with ourselves, with our own experience of the body and the mind, then we can allow change, we can allow loss and there's much less sorrow. We can allow impermanence. We can allow insight into impermanence. Because when the mind has strong greed in it, we do not like to believe that things can ever change. We want to stick to it, we want to hold on. 
with the faculty of generosity, we can let go. These two abilities, these two powers that we can have of morality and generosity are talked about a lot in terms of reflection. In a very traditional sense of Buddhism, people are taught when they are dying to look back upon the good deeds that they have done and to reflect upon them and to take delight in them. I think culturally we tend to feel a little bit embarrassed and focus a bit more on the bad things we've done. But what happens if you're sitting here and you remember a time when you extended yourself, when you offered something, when you refrained from harming out of a sense of kindness? The mind gets filled with light and happiness. It's a very wonderful feeling. So these are two very powerful components of this kind of foundation. Another powerful component is to establish oneself in renunciation. Renunciation as a word is not very popular in our time, in our world. It can have a very heavy, awesome, austere connotation. But actually renunciation means aligning oneself with simplicity. It's as though you were to ask yourself, What is it that I really need to be happy? And it's recognizing that when our lives become very complex, they basically become one long effort at maintenance after another. It becomes simply maintenance to hold together all the pieces of our lives when they're very, very complicated. So it's aligning oneself with simplicity and receiving the strength and the joy that comes from that. It also means a kind of renunciation of sensory stimulation, the six senses of seeing and hearing and tasting and touching and smelling and thinking over and over again. When we can do that, when we can renounce to some extent And it's like the mind becomes luminous in this silence. There is so much extraordinary happiness in this silence. To renounce doesn't mean to push away. It doesn't mean to try never to see and never to hear and never to think, never to feel. It means not to grasp after these things, not to continually seek contact, one moment of contact of the sense doors after another not to hold on to these experiences, not to dwell in them, and not to be afraid to be different. Sometimes I use this example of myself, my own experience, when I leave retreats where I've sat. Maybe I've sat for 10 days or two weeks or three months or whatever. The retreat is over and I get into my car and I start to drive away, and I watch my hand go down to turn on the radio. It's quite an interesting experience because I can see clearly in that moment in my mind, I have no desire to hear anything. I have no desire to listen to sound. 
but I'm uncomfortable in the silence because I'm not in retreat anymore. And I just watch my hand go out to turn on the radio so that something is happening because to have nothing happening isn't appropriate anymore. It doesn't feel right. And if I can pull my hand back and just be with nothing happening, just to dwell in the silence, it can be a very complete experience just in that, in which the mind can actually be radiant, instead of just looking for a lot to fill it up, to fill up the space. I'd like to read this poem from the Tao Te Ching about this quality of renunciation. There's no greater burden than desire, no greater curse than discontent, no greater misfortune than wanting something for oneself. Therefore, one who knows that enough is enough will always have enough. Accept disgrace willingly, accept misfortune as the human condition. What do you mean by accept disgrace willingly? Accept being unimportant. Do not be concerned with loss or gain. This is called accepting disgrace willingly. What do you mean by accept misfortune as the human condition? Misfortune comes from having a body. Without a body, how could there be misfortune? Surrender yourself humbly then you can be trusted to care for all things. Love the world as your own self, then you can truly care for all things. Not to define our lives in terms of needing and wanting and having to get more and more and more. It's the power of renunciation. And part of that is the faculty or the ability to experience gratitude which is considered to be a very rare possibility in this world. In the Buddhist teaching, it said that there are two extremely rare faculties, two extremely rare occurrences in this world. One is someone who has dedicated their lives to being a benefactor, to serving and to caring for others. And the other very rare and extraordinary thing in this world is someone who experiences gratitude. And so it's taught that if we have been helped in some way by someone, if we can possibly reciprocate, if we can possibly repay, we should do that. And if we can't do that, we should never forget that this has happened that someone has extended themselves for us or helped us in some way and developed the feeling of gratitude. It's a very common custom in Asia, and certainly in Burma, for people to say, if you have done something, for them to say, well, now I'm in your debt. I began to feel a little uncomfortable, thinking, wow, this is very strange, you know. I wasn't doing this deed, this action, whatever it was, with an eye to being repaid, to having something done. But after a while, what it became was a mutually responsive system 
were out of gratitude for something I had done, somebody would try to take care of me in some way. And out of gratitude for that, I would try to take care of them in some way. And on and on it went. To honor the sense of renunciation and simplicity and gratitude. The next factor that forms part of the foundation of our path is the quality of courage. We have all made some kind of sacrifice to be here. Most of us could be in a more comfortable place, more familiar, less strange. It is some kind of sacrifice of some sort to be here. Certainly we could be in a place that is less austere. To be here implies some willingness to take risks, to expose oneself, to be vulnerable, to be adventurous, to give up the familiar and the expedient and the convenient, and to experiment. This is the quality of courage. You know how some people go hiking or trekking and they carry as many things with them as possible so that you get the impression that all of their household goods are with them and that when they get to wherever they're going, they're going to set up an identical house with all of their furniture or whatever. To have the sense of courage means to be willing to leave it behind and to see what may be offered to us, to see what may appear along the way. It's a willingness to see what's out there, to see what may protect us, what may sustain us, to see what we can find. Before I ever went to India, just a day or two before I was leaving, I was a student in Buffalo, New York. I was going to travel to India with some friends. We had really virtually no idea of what kind of teaching we could find and where we would find a teacher. I knew I was very interested in Buddhist practice, but I didn't know how to go about doing that once I got to India. It was just at that time that Trungpa Rinpoche was on his first speaking tour in this country, and he came to Buffalo, New York to give a talk. He asked for questions after the talk. All the questions were written out in a pile, put in a pile in front of him, and he chose just randomly out of the pile different slips of paper. One of the friends that I was going to travel to India with wrote out the question, I'm leaving tomorrow for Asia, and I want to study Buddhist meditation. Can you supply some information about where might be a good place to go? And it happened to be one of the questions that Trungpa Rinpoche picked out of the pile. He read it out loud, he was silent for a moment, and then he said, I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. And that was all he said. (laughs) And armed with that, we went off. (laughs) And it was exactly right. Things came together in their own way, seemingly accidentally, over and over again. 
You need a lot of courage to be willing to follow this, this process, this path. It's the force of sincerity that moves us along, that allows these circumstances to arise. Then the next quality that is part of this foundation is the faculty of truthfulness. Even though truthfulness is implied in morality, it's stated explicitly in undertaking the five precepts, still it is singled out as being extremely important, as being very essential to a true spiritual journey. Sometimes it's talked about the Buddha in his previous lives. It said that in one life, the Buddha who was then known as the Bodhisattva made a strong commitment to attain Buddhahood in a future life, to become fully enlightened and spent the ensuing eons of time cultivating and perfecting certain qualities which would launch him, which would set the stage for complete liberation in a future life. The qualities such as morality and generosity and renunciation and patience and energy and resolve Lifetime after lifetime, the Bodhisattva tried to perfect one or more of these qualities. It said that many times in the course of those lives, the, the Bodhisattva would do something which was not quite correct. He would harm someone somehow, or would do something that wasn't right, that wasn't appropriate behavior. His morality may not have been perfect, but the one thing that he never did in all of those lifetimes, ever, was to tell a lie. That the moment that he first formed that aspiration to become a Buddha, to become fully enlightened, from that moment on, his commitment to the truth was unwavering, even as He would have difficulty on other accounts. That was the one thing he held fast to. Because to have a commitment to truth in any form means to have a commitment to truth in every form. There cannot be a devotion to absolute truth without a sense of respect for immediate truth. And so the one thing he never did, ever, was to tell a lie. The momentary truth, whatever it is, whether we like it or not, whether it's what we expected or not, whether it's what we want or not, whatever it is, this momentary truth is our vehicle to a more absolute truth, to a more ultimate truth. If we take that away from ourselves through denial, through pretense, through projection, then we are denying ourselves that bridge, that ability, that doorway from the momentary to the more absolute. 
if we take the momentary truth away from others through deceit or duplicity, we are stealing that opportunity, that doorway, away from them. And so it's actually a very serious problem, even though it may only take 15 seconds for the words to come out, it can have some very grave consequences. And so it is something we take great, great care with as best we can to be truthful. The next quality that is part of this foundation is a sense of trust. Trust meaning confidence, both in oneself and in the process to realize deeply within ourselves that the teachings are not theoretical. They're not abstract and they're not removed. It's easy to believe that they're archaic, that it was something that was relevant in a faraway place in a long ago time, or to very strange people who live in caves. And that is something we can appreciate, can read about, we can think about, We can appreciate as a kind of literary description of an inner journey. But they're very real. They're very real in an immediate and concrete sense, or else they don't mean anything. There was a time in my early practice when I was experiencing a lot of physical pain, which I resented and I hated and I feared quite a lot. There was also a time in my practice when I was sitting with a particular teacher who periodically would give a discourse on the Buddhist teaching of the law of dependent origination, which is an extremely complex and sophisticated teaching, but in absolutely its simplest form. It talks about how we have contact of the senses through the six sense doors, We have seeing and hearing and tasting and touching and smelling and thinking. And that this contact, every moment of this contact, is experienced as either being pleasant or painful or neutral. That our conditioned tendency is to react or respond to the pleasant contact with grasping, with craving, with wanting to react to the unpleasant contact with anger and hatred and fear and pushing away, and to react to the neutral contact with delusion, with spacing out, with being forgetful, not being aware. This is our conditioning, and this is what keeps us bound. The Buddha talked about the possibility in each moment of contact of not reacting in these old conditioned ways, of experiencing the pleasant feelings, tastes, sights, the unpleasant ones, and the neutral ones, all of them with a sense of detachment and mindfulness and wisdom and compassion, all of them. And that this was the way to freedom. My teacher would give this discourse quite often. And I would be sitting there appreciating it tremendously. I would be thinking, wow, this is so fantastic. 
And this is so inspiring. I must have been a Buddhist in my previous life because I just feel such an immediate affinity to all of this teaching. If only I could get rid of this knee pain. I know I could go really far in this practice. I just have such a sense of inspiration. And he would go on and he would be elaborating a little further how at every single moment there's some kind of contact and we find it pleasant or painful or neutral and on and on. And I'd be sitting there thinking, boy, that is so right. You know, that just sounds so fantastic. I've never been moved by anything the way I've been moved by this. If only I could get rid of this knee pain. I know it's what's holding me back. It's like this curse that I've got somehow. You know, no one else is suffering the way that I'm suffering. And, you know, if only I could get rid of it, I would really do well. And he would go on, he would be expounding it further, and, you know, how we grasp after the pleasant and we push away the unpleasant and we get deluded with the neutral. And I'd be sitting there thinking, boy, that is so great. That is so fantastic. I think what I'll do is I'll go down to this yoga ashram I've heard about in South India and I'll stretch out my body for about six months. And then when I come back here to meditate, I won't feel any pain at all and I'll go really far in the practice. And he would go on, and I would go on. And I had this amazing inner dialogue going on. It took a very long time, but one day, it did happen. I realized that what he was talking about was my knee pain. That what the Buddha was talking about was my knee pain. It wasn't something lofty and far away to be revered. It was very real. It was very immediate. It was every moment of our life experience and how we can relate to it to lead to bondage or to lead to freedom. So to trust one's experience, to learn to look at it and to rely on it as the true vehicle for understanding and freedom. Someone once asked the Buddha, they said, You know, all these different teachers come through here and they give different systems. They offer different systems of practice. Some say one thing, some say another thing. How is a person to judge what is a true teaching? What will actually lead a person to freedom, to happiness, to unconditioned happiness? And the Buddha replied in several different ways. He said, take the teaching and put it into practice. And if you find it leads to the weakening and dispersing of attachment, then you can consider it a true teaching, a true discipline. He said, take the teaching and put it into practice. And if you find that it leads to a sense of weariness about the circularity of life, just going on and on and on in ignorance, just acting out mechanically our lives, then you can consider it a true teaching, a true discipline. Put it into practice, and if it leads to the extinction of the defilements of mind which burn us, which torment us, then you can consider it a true teaching and a true discipline. Put it into practice, and if it leads to peacefulness, you can consider it a true teaching. Put it into practice, and if it leads to a knowledge that's higher 
than acquired knowledge that we can get from others or from books, if it leads to a sense of clearly and openly seeing the true nature of ourselves and of the world. So it's as though we're trying to see beyond or behind a wall, and suddenly it breaks open and we can see a sense of clarity. You can consider it a true teaching. If you put it into practice and it leads to the end of suffering, if it leads to nibbana, it can be considered a true teaching. It is all based on putting it into practice and seeing for oneself. Using the criteria of a happiness that is beyond time, it's beyond the condition, beyond the momentary pleasures of the senses. Put it into practice to see for oneself and to trust oneself, to trust the experience if we have done it honestly and sincerely. We can look for ourselves more and more without being dependent on what others say. If we feel that within us there is a very deep love for the truth that will not compromise even if something difficult happens, even if something unpleasant happens, it just doesn't compromise. We have confidence in the process, and we have confidence in ourselves. If we're confident, we don't hold back. We don't hesitate. We don't approach things obliquely. There was a time when I went to Burma when I was going to be doing not Vipassana practice, which I was quite familiar with, but I was going to be doing intensive metta meditation. I was going to do the loving-kindness meditation intensively all day long as my only practice. At the time when Upandita called me into his room to give me the instructions, he also said to me, Do you think you're going to be successful at doing this practice? And right away, this little red flag went up in my mind, and I said to myself, this is a trap. He's looking for conceit. So I said to him, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll be successful, and maybe I won't be successful, but I'm sure I'll enjoy it anyway. (laughs) Trying to fumble my way through. And he just kind of shook his head sorrowfully. And he said, everything you do, you should do with confidence. You should do it with a sense of being able to succeed, being able to accomplish. Later on, when I was reading the Vasudhimaga about meditation practice, metta meditation practice, they talked about one of the very first reflections a person does classically in setting out upon doing that meditation is to reflect on one's ability to do it with great confidence, with trust in that fact. Really when we look at our practice, in some way it is not very difficult. To be mindful is not very difficult. Sometimes we treat it as a kind of exotic, rare commodity, which, you know, if we end a day in an intensive retreat and we look back and we can say, 
I was mindful two or three times, and we feel, we feel quite happy. But actually, we are all mindful a lot, quite a lot. It is not so difficult to be present, to be present without grasping, without anger, and without delusion. To remember to be mindful is extremely difficult. The actual manifestation is not hard. To remember to be mindful in a variety of situations is extremely hard because that brings us smack up against the force of our past conditioning. To remember in the middle of turbulence, in the middle of turmoil, restlessness, doubt, agitation, worry, remorse, to note it, which is a symbolic expression of being mindful of it, to watch it, to pay attention to it, to stay awake. It's not very easy to remember, partly because the quality of mindfulness, the word mindfulness seems so innocuous. More and more and more we begin to remember. Let me pay attention to that too. Let me look at that. I'll be present with that. And it never harms one. It is, in fact, a great protection. As we remember more and more and more, we can be confident in ourselves that we are developing along a track, along a path, where more and more easily it will become the natural way of being, to be mindful. So to rely on that, that sense of ourselves, the sense of our ability to be able to do it, not to be deceived by past conditioning. Then the last element of this foundation are the qualities of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. Loving kindness is the factor of metta, of friendship to all of life, beginning with ourselves and extending without limit. Compassion is that quivering of the heart in response to pain or sorrow. Sympathetic joy is the ability to rejoice and take delight in the happiness of others rather than feeling what is so commonly felt, a kind of jealousy and envy and unhappiness that someone else is happy. And then the quality of equanimity, being able to let go, being able to accept things the way they are, not to be shaken, not to be deterred because things are difficult or unexpected. If we cultivate morality and we cultivate generosity, we cultivate a sense of confidence, learning to rely on our own experience, and we cultivate loving kindness and compassion and joy for others and equanimity, then the kind of foundation that we build is simply unshakable. 
There is not a circumstance that can arise that can make it crumble because it is not based on needing things outside of ourselves to be a certain way. When we talk about the word Dhamma or Dharma, which we've talked about quite a lot throughout this retreat, we've defined it in many ways. Sometimes it's defined as the law, or sometimes it's used simply conventionally as the Buddha's teaching. Sometimes it's defined as meaning laws of nature or the nature of things or the truth. One more meaning to the word Dhamma or Dharma is that which supports us, that which provides support. And so it is said that if we protect the Dhamma, if we uphold the Dhamma, if we support the Dhamma, the Dhamma will protect us. It will uplift us. It will sustain us and support us. If we orient our lives and practice these qualities of generosity and morality and kindness and care and courage and confidence, we are supporting and protecting and bringing to life the Dhamma, keeping alive the Dhamma. And in turn, the truth itself, the Dharma itself, will protect us, it will support us, it will keep us on an onward moving path. Let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.